And uh, it's also probably the most easy to stomach by our broader culture. So, I mean, it's very popular. Everyone in every alley of America, uh, perhaps especially those who like to hang out in alleys, <laughs> uh, agree that God is love. Almost anyone you talk to would agree that maybe the primary attribute of God is love. Maybe that's all they know about him. So since this belief is so common, it's also very commonly divorced from what God actually tells us about his love in Scripture. So in order to combat the worldly ideas about the love of God that we're fed by by the world, basically from the cradle, I thought it would be helpful to take a really big step back and get a wide-angle view of sort of the meta-discussion of what we're even doing this semester. Uh, So before we jump into the love of God, I want us to have a right understanding of the attributes of God as a whole. The whole idea of God having attributes at all. So how do we think of God's nature? This is maybe a little bit overdue, uh, but I can't. I was having a really hard time figuring out how to go forward without a pit stop on this absolutely fundamental doctrine of the love of God. Um, so I figured where we'd start is with a confession. Almost every denomination in Christianity, from Baptists and Presbyterians to Catholics and Eastern Orthodox people, um, and almost every historical denomination in between, holds to some confession of faith, which, which is a kind of a rallying document which really quickly says basically everything that their group holds to be true and foundational for their faith. So although these confessions differ between denominations, there is uh, a foundational chapter in most of them that's basically the same, whether or not they um, uh, affirm it very well or not. Uh, and this chapter is the, the, their take on who God is and what the Trinity is. So for almost all of historical Christian orthodoxy, we have held basically the same basic conviction that reads something like what will be on the screen if you can go to the, the slides quick. If God were composed of parts, there would be aspects of his being that were more basic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So this particular one is from the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is from the Presbyterians. I know we're Baptists, but the uh, Baptist version is almost identical in this part. It just adds a few things, and this one's a little simpler to read, so I chose this. Um, So this is how it goes. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, and this part is... Uh, what I want to look at more, most closely, without body, parts, or passions. He's immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will, for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. So loving is in there. Forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal, most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. Which is roughly a quote of Exodus. The end there. So the part I'm most interested in is the header from there is but one only living true God through without parts or passions. So it's one living true God infinite in two things, his being 
and his existence infinitely is and infinitely uh, uh, perfect in his excellencies. He's a spirit all the way, even though he took on flesh, and he's invisible. So you could search all creation and even add all of it up, and you will never find him within any of it. And finally, he is without body, parts, or passions. So everything that he is, all the attributes that will come later in the confession, he is totally from top to bottom. This is what's called the simplicity or unity of God. So in Luke trying to do a message on both God's simplicity and God's love, uh, there's a video snippet that does the first half for me. And I think it does it really well. So this is James Dolezal, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, from Founders Ministries on Divine Simplicity. And then I'll come back up after we're done. Then his being is self. This flouts the most fundamental biblical teaching regarding God as the all-sufficient source of all that is not identical to him. Everything not God is made by God, and God is made by none. The argument with creation is not that God is self-created or self-made. God is not among the made-to-be things. He couldn't make himself for the reason that you have to be in order to do. You know that, right? That you have to be in order to do. So that the idea of absolute self-causation is in fact an impossibility. The argument is not that God is self-caused or the creator of himself. The argument is that God is existence itself, unbounded, uncaused, the subsisting I am that I am. If this is the case, then composition of parts must be denied of God. I think what we need to, let me just drill down on this just a tiny bit before we get into the language question in the third place. I think then what we need to be careful of when we think about the attributes of God, his power and his justice and his love and his timelessness, is that we want to be careful of thinking of these as a set of properties that sort of hang together as a bundle, a, a, a unit of bits, one bit to another bit that comprises God. Now, because of our finitude, because of the limitations of our creatureliness, because I've, I've never had a simple thought about the simple God, I've never had an infinite thought about the infinite God, because my mind cannot correspond to the greatness of his being in a one-to-one -one way, even as we were discussing earlier in our worship, that there's a sort of overflow, a profound sense of the, of the finitude and the limitation of our worship. And the, the, what gives us that sense is the unboundedness of his being. I think that we are overwhelmed with the sense that God is beyond my... He's greater than the greatest thought I have of him. He's more boundless than the statements I make about his boundlessness, because even those statements come to an end. I've never said an unbounded thing about an unbounded God. I've definitely never said a simple thing about a simple God. Uh, and I think the temptation becomes that we would read off of the manner of, our God, of the limitation of our thoughts about God or our talk about God, the manner of his being. And so because I have to cobble together my God talk, God must be a corresponding cobbled together thing. So in the third place, let's consider how it is that we speak about 
a simple God. The logic might be compelling that God is most absolute in existence and he cannot depend on that which is not himself for any actuality of his being. Nevertheless, the doctrine carries some deeply counterintuitive and even strange implications for our language. It means that our ordinary creaturely patterns of speech, subject plus predicate, do not quite fit God in the way they fit creatures. Even as I observed earlier, the statement God is simple is not itself a simple statement. It's a multi-parted statement. So if God is simple, how come our thoughts about God and our talk about God aren't? Isn't, there some, isn't this putting some kind of distance between the truth of God and the words that we use and the thoughts that we have about God? A few things about language very briefly in the way that it works with creatures is that when I say James is standing... That is actually a multi-parted statement, James plus standing. And in fact, it turns out that being James and standing upright are really parts, meaning sometimes I'm sitting and not standing. So there really is a distinction both in my statement and there tends to be a corresponding distinction in the thing. And so the easy thing is to assume that this is how it is with God. If I say God is powerful, there's God plus power. Except what simplicity is saying is that in God, there's no distinction between being God and being powerful. There's a distinction in my God talk, but there's not a corresponding distinction in the divine being. Otherwise, he would be reducible to units of being more fundamental than himself. And as the absolute creator and sustainer of all things, and the one whom we trust for all of his promises, he just can't be that. Divine simplicity then insists on an inescapable sort of incapacity in all of our God talk that we cannot discover the manner of his being by attempting to read it off of the surface grammar of our propositions about him. The shape of our propositional statements is only suited to correspond in a one-to-one -one manner to multi-part and composite beings. Multi-part statements tend to fit multi-part beings really nicely. Multi-part statements, which are the only kinds of statements I can make, um, don't tend to fit a simple God very nicely. So how can they be true? How can my statements that God is love, that God is wise, that God is just, that God is powerful, all these multi-part statements that I make, and even those, even those different terms that I make, how can they be true? I'm going to submit to you one way to think about how it is that this works. There's a certain respect in which an absolutely simple God is incomprehensible to us. This does not mean unknowable or unbelievable, but it just means that we can't form a one-to-one -one concept in our mind that syncs up with divine simplicity. Just like you can't have a thought of infinity that is in fact infinite. There's, a, there's an incommensurability between our thoughts and the God about whom we think. And yet, God himself has deigned to use language and words in scripture and through the demonstration of his power and his grace, his justice in the created order to give us, as it were, a bit-by-bit -bit knowledge of him through the various ways in which he manifests himself. And this is the reality. His revelation of himself is not simple, nor is it infinite. The Bible is an infinite the created world is an infinite. Only God is infinite. And yet he condescends to, as it were, package infinitude, the true revelation of himself, and he makes it accessible to us. As I said, I can't have a simple thought of a simple God. And so God allows me to think about him in multi-parted ways by disclosing the fullness of his being to me bit by bit, 
showing me here his love, showing me here his justice, showing me here his gentleness, showing me over there his power. He reveals that to us in nature and he reveals it to us most remarkably in scripture. The earlier theologians liked the imagery of light passing through a prism. Pure white light is not perceptible to the eye. It needs to be refracted into a spectrum of color uh, in order to be seen and apprehended by us. We could think perhaps of the attributes of God in this way. He causes that infinite plentitude of simple glory to pass through the prism of creation and redemption and refract, as it were, into a spectrum of glorious attributes. And so one, one beam of the spectrum might be goodness and another one be power and another one be wisdom and another be justice. And what we're trying to say is that the, the multiplicity of those terms and those attributes is due to the refracted manner in which God manifests himself in our lives and in scripture and in nature. But just as with that spectrum, you wouldn't trace the spectrum back to a spectrum behind it. The spectrum traces back to pure white light. All that is contained in the rainbow of color is in pure white light, just not spectrally. When we talk about God and when we talk about his attributes, as we're doing this week, we are beholding the, the beams of spectral glory that he has shown forth in the created order and in the Holy Scripture to know him. But we need to be careful not to assume that those are parts of God. God is most absolute irreducible in being, the one from whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. And for this reason, we don't look for a being prior to him and worship that. For this reason, we can worship him with absolute, unreserved confidence. For this reason, we can trust his word unreservedly because God is not a relative being dependent upon what is not himself to be himself. So this for a crash course in divine simplicity. God, you are good, and you Thanks, Jeff. do good. You have condescended to reveal yourself to us. <laughs> All right, so that was really fast, and we jumped into a, the third point of a long talk. So if there are some things in there that it's hard to pick up on, that is probably why. Um, but as a, uh, a comment on it, um, it's essentially saying that God is God, God is uh, God is what he is. God is who he is. He is the I am, as he said in the Old Testament. So anytime we see parts of him, he is shining through his revelation to us, through, through his creation to us. And we shouldn't understand, misunderstand him and think that he's a bunch of separate things cobbled together. He used that word pretty often. We shouldn't be mistaken and think that any one of his attributes is logically prior to any of his others either. He is who he is, and he was who he was, and he will always be who he will always be. His attributes are refractions of one simple beam, perfect beam of light, the light of his nature. So God is one, even in his three persons. So now we need to transition into love, one of those refractions. Can you see how this understanding of God's attributes affects our understanding of God's love? 
It means that as an attribute, God's love cannot be absolutized or minimized because of other attributes. God is just as much loving as every other attribute we've looked at so far this semester. He's gracious, he's self-existent, he's sovereign, he's immutable, he's holy, and so on and so forth. Why is this? Because God simply is. He is all that he is all the way through. So let's look at probably the best example and perhaps the most familiar one. If you could open to 1 John 4, verse 16. Between this and John 3.16 and Matthew 7.1, which is the judge not passage, um, these are probably some of the most commonly quoted scriptures, uh, especially by people who probably don't spend much time in the scriptures. They are excellent scriptures, and there's a reason they're highly quoted, but uh, it also means they're uh, subject to misinterpretation. Likewise, Christians uh, often interpret this verse as if God himself came down and said to us, Hey, if you forget everything else, don't forget this verse. If you, if you, it seems like sometimes if you piled up the 30-some other thousand verses in the Bible and put them on one side of the scale and put a quarter of this verse on the other side of the scale, we would say that this side of the scale is heavier. That this one quarter of a verse outweighs the rest of the revelation of God. And you know which quarter I'm talking about, right? So I'll read it. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So what's the quarter of the verse? God is love. But if you would flip back to me to the first chapter of 1 John, chapter 1, uh, verse 5, we see... Uh, John using almost the same type of expression in the same way, except with God's light. This is uh, 1 John chapter 1. This is the message that we heard from him and proclaimed to you. You can see the blue and the blue correspond. It's just like the other one. So we have come to know and believe. Going on in 1 John 1, uh, we've come to proclaim that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. It's just like the other one. God is love. So which is it? Is God light, or is God love? He, is he most perfectly defined by his light or his holiness, his lack of darkness and his total otherness and his you know, shining into creation? Or is he most perfectly defined by his love? I think that's actually a silly question. God is light and he is love because of the divine simplicity idea. He is and he is God and God is love and he is light. Totally all the way through in everything that he is and does. With respect to his actions and his attributes, he is light and he is love. And just so you're convinced of what is happening here, I've outlined the rest of the verse in the same way. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, 
We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus the Son cleanses us from all sin. Do you see how that's essentially the same message as verse 16 of chapter 4? Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. The blood of Jesus, his Son cleaning us, is functionally synonymous with um, God abiding in us. So, I hope that clears up some of the misunderstandings that we have about statements like God is love or God is light or God is holy or God, you know, God is immutable. Um, I hope the attributes uh, are shining in the correct light. Um, so, I think we're free to stop talking about talking about <laughs> God's love and actually start talking about God's love. So, here's how the rest of our time will go. First, more quickly... I will talk, talk about the love of God. And then, for the rest of the time, I'll show you the love of God in Scripture. Or rather, Jesus will show us and show Peter and the Twelve the love of God in John 13. So, part one of the rest of the, of the message of the love of God. We want to look at the loves of God. The different ways that God expresses His love. So talking about the love of God is brought to you in part by D.A. Carson, an excellent Bible scholar and teacher uh, from his short and powerful book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. You can flip there. He has an excellent breakdown of what we see in the Bible when God shows his love, like that refraction idea. This is what it shows up as. But a word before we get into it, however, whatever what we've just looked at for the last several minutes, 10 minutes or 20 minutes... Um, doesn't just apply to the love attribute of God, the, his whole love as a unit. It also applies to each of these different ways, of these five different ways that are on the screen. If any of these categories or expressions of God's love is absolutized or made exclusive, then we're going to fail to understand God in his terms and distort what it means for him to love. So these are the five different ways that we can see God loving the scriptures from uh, D.A. Carson. First, we see it in the peculiar love of the Father for the Son and of the Son for the Father. This is the love within the Trinity, within God himself. It's worth mentioning that the love of the Father for the Son manifests in different ways than the love of the Son for the Father, hence the terms Son and Father. For example, uh, none of us have kids except for Luke, so I'll use his kids as an example. Luke's oldest son, Asher, if he could love perfectly like Jesus does, would love Luke as a father, and, and Luke, Luke would love Asher as a son. Their relationship determines the expression of their love. But if it's perfect and godly love, as we'll see in John 13, then it is the act, actually the same type of love in them, which isn't a given when there's different expressions of love. And so we'll get there. Why is it possible for love to be expressed in different ways, yet be the same love? The second is God's providential love over all that he has made. So this would be half the first half of what we would call common grace. That God sends rain and sunshine on both the wicked and the righteous, and then he takes meticulous care of all of his creation. He's upholding it by the word of his power. He clothes the lilies 
He takes pride in the various animals he's made. Just look at God's uh, boasting about his creation at the end of Job, for example. He has very strong words for the horse and the ostrich. He's the one who feeds the lion, even though the lion strives to hunt his prey. Before the fall, God pronounced everything as very good, that this thing is pleasing in his sight, that it, that it resonates with what he would want reality to be. He loves, providentially, his creation. The third type, God's salvific stance toward his fallen world. So this one, in our circles, uh, with our emphasis on election and predestination and sovereignty, sometimes gets buried. (laughs) Uh, Some of you, I have before, have asked, should I tell unbelievers, or just a general group like this, that God loves them? The answer is yes. God has, as we've seen in, in the second point, a providential love over them, and he also, in a limited sense, died for the whole world. John 3.16 style. He has a desire that none should perish, 2 Peter 3.9, and he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, Ezekiel 33.11. Yet, that is a disposition or a stance, as Carson puts it, and it's not the entire story. The fourth uh, type that Carson describes is his particular, effective, selecting love towards his elect. The Old and the New Testaments are chock full of passages speaking of a special love for the ones that God has chosen way back before the foundation of the world. He chose Israel, or also known as Jacob, and not Jacob's older twin Esau. In Malachi, for example, God points this out to show how it is that he loves Israel even as they question his love. I have loved you in selecting you, and I have hated Esau in not selecting him. For that reason, uh, and many others, this is the love that we are actually most often comforted with as Christians. It is this expression of love that accounts for our salvation, for example, our adoption as sons and daughters, our eternity with God in the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus, in this number four, purchased effective salvation for his church, his sheep, and no others. And finally, uh, the fifth version, God's love is sometimes said to be directed towards his own people, the ones he's elected in number four, in a way that is conditioned on obedience. This is to say that once he's done number four to you, that you have been chosen by God and adopted by him, you now relate to him as a father, and he relates to you as a son. According to this permanent covenant that he has made with his church, according to his adoption of you, all of our pain and suffering no longer is contributing towards divine retribution against us for our sins, but it is loving discipline as his children. A gentle correction meant to give us greater joy in the long run. This was true in the Old Testament with Israel as well as in the New. God's people remain his people even as they fall out of certain levels of his uh, temporal, temporary blessing because that blessing is, not, is uh, converted into 
painful discipline, as we hear in Hebrews 12. But that discipline is in order to bring us back into a right standing with him and enjoy peaceful and joyful obedience. And one day the discipline will end because we will be made perfect. So that's uh, not as far as you can say on any of those subjects. We could spend many, many days on each of them. But please keep those in mind as we look at Jesus in John 13. So if you'll open with me to John 13, part 2, we're going to see God's love firsthand. Um, Maybe you've seen this on Facebook or Twitter. I've seen a few different forms of it, and Gavin sent me an email with one of them uh, yesterday. Um, The quote, it goes like this. I've often wondered what I would do if I knew today were my last day on earth. I'd probably live wildly, maximize the pleasure, you know, eat a bunch of junk food and go party. But I recently realized Jesus knew what his last day was, and he washed feet. John 13 is that text. It's a fitting text because we are actually in the middle of Passion Week, or Holy Week, as it's called, the week of Christ's death and resurrection 2,000 years ago. Uh, A group of us have been uh, reading the stories of what Jesus did on each day of this week. Um, And it turns out that uh, Easter this year is only one day behind Easter 2,000 years ago, the week that Jesus actually died and rose. So it follows that tomorrow night, when we read uh, the night of the Last Supper and the last day Jesus was alive before the cross, it's only one day off of the... 1,988-year anniversary of the Last Supper. That is fascinating. And John 13 is the beginning of John's account of that Last Supper. Chapters 13 through 17. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the disciple who leaned on Jesus' chest during this meal, is about to start his narrative of his last evening with Jesus before he was brutally tortured to death. Here's what John says about that night. First one. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to them, Lord, Do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, saying, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you, speaking to all of them, are clean, 
but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So, let's begin with verses 1 through 4, John's prologue. In verses 1 through 4, John sets the scene for a few chapters. This is his prologue to the entire Last Supper section, all the way through chapter 17. And what he says is that Jesus' hour had come to depart and go to the Father. Notice just how central that idea is in John's prologue. Here is an example of the first type of love in Carson's list, the inter-Trinitarian love. Jesus was going to depart to be with the Father. Verse 1. In verse 3, Jesus knew what the Father was doing, and the Father had given Jesus all things. And then John comments that Jesus had come from God and was going back to him. In this we can see both directions of Father to Son, and Son to Father love in this text. Jesus, in submission to his Father, had existed with him before the foundation of the world. He had come from his Father. And then, at his Father's command, he was pleased to come to earth, knowing what would be in store for him. So Jesus' love of the Father includes a love and trust and obedience of his Father. And instead of, focus, instead of John focusing on the coming pain of the cross, John instead focuses on what Jesus will gain when it's finished. Jesus is going back to God, back to his Father. He's going home to the one he loves. But we also see the love of the Father as well, even in the face of the cross. Firstly, the Father gave him knowledge, This is fascinating. God does not relate to Jesus as purely a master. Though he is a master, Jesus will submit to him in all things. No, the Father tells Jesus exactly what he's doing as he sends him to earth. As explained in John 15, and as we'll read tomorrow night. It's the difference between, for example, an earthly example, uh, someone saying, uh, go get me a shovel and saying, Son, please get me a shovel. I need it to build a glorious garden, and I'll share with you the fruit. Oh, and watch out, there are some thistles on the way, but once you get it, we can work on it together. There is a difference between knowing and not knowing when uh, the, the Father sends Jesus, and Jesus has been told everything about what the Father intends for him. Beyond that, even, John says the Father has given all things into Jesus' hands. The Father has exalted Jesus and given him authority over all things. This is another aspect of love that we do not want to miss. The Father is giving. He gives. It's not merely affection. There's also 
action and will. And then in this section, we also have an example of Carson's second type of love, his providential love over all these made. It's a little bit hidden. Um, you, uh, it's buried in the phrase, in the world. God has been grievously sinned against. His creation is cursed and broken, and yet God upholds the universe in his hand. He is the creator and sustainer of the universe. He created it, and now he sustains it. Every moment that continues to exist is love from God. The world that Jesus and his disciples are in is still turning, and the sun is still shining. They're sitting down for a dinner. Even though God has every right to wipe it clean and start over at any moment since the fall, Here's Jesus, and here are the disciples. They're eating food that has grown in an environment that's conducive to life, that God sent rains upon, even as the people who are eating the food are gross sinners. So that's an example of the second type of love. And the third type of love is also on display here. So let me ask you a question. How exactly... As Jesus, quote, loved his own. Yes, by choosing them as his disciples. But what else? The answer is that he's been teaching them for the whole time they've been with him. And not only them, but everyone who's been able to hear since he started his ministry three years ago. Jesus' teaching and his plea for them to believe has gone out to everyone, not just the twelve that he selected. Indeed, the twelve are themselves from the world. This is an example of God's love of everyone. And we learn here as well that not all of them are truly his. So this drives it home even deeper. Judas, John tells us, already had it in his heart to betray Jesus. And yet, as we'll see, Jesus kneels and washes his feet. Judas has been the recipient of all this same teaching as the other 11. And he's been the recipient of all the same calls to believe as the other 11. But he is of the world, and he will not be saved by Christ. Which brings us to the fourth way that Carson describes God's love. God's electing love, his, his special love toward the elect. He, in, this, in John here, he has taught and invited all 12 of the people eating supper with him. But he has chosen to save 11 of them. In chapter 17, for example, verse 12, Jesus says, praying to his father, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have, give, been given, which you have given me. Sorry. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus losing Judas was planned before Judas ever lived, at least as far back as the scripture is being written. So the only disciples whom Jesus truly loved to the end, as John says, were the eleven. Jesus had a special electing love for those he would effectively save. And, therefore, this is the type of love that is most near and dear to us as Christians. This love is the love that causes us to love the love of God so much. 
It's why we love the doctrine of the love of God. It's this love that is the difference between us having a comfortable descent into hell and eternity with God. We can, we can know distantly of the first type, the love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father. We can enjoy the second type, the stability of a sustained creation and rain and sunshine and good foods. And we may also even enjoy the patience of God towards sinners, which gives us more time on earth before judgment. But without the effective application of God's sacrificial love for his sheep, his church, his bride... We all come to the same end as Judas. And then, once we are His, by His electing love, we get to enjoy His electing love all the way to the end, as John says. And to the end of Jesus' life on earth, yes. Our death, yes. The death of the world as we know it when Jesus comes again, yes. To the end. Those on whom God has set His electing love will enjoy the love of God for both now, here on earth, in this very instant, and all the way through eternity. We know him not just as creator, sustainer, and teacher, as Judas did, but we know him as our father, if we are his. And that concludes the prologue that John has for us. So let's move now into the living parable that Jesus displays. All of what I've just said can be very hard to understand. And it can be even harder, it is even harder to swallow. But what John shows Jesus doing next makes sense of it all. If God's electing love is hard for you, then perhaps, and this isn't necessarily the case, but perhaps... Like Peter in our coming text, you don't understand God's love at all. His love isn't like our sinful love, our consumptive, uh, uh, sentimental love. So what we need to do in this next section is watch Jesus' love in action. This living parable is how we should make sense of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. John always attaches Jesus' teaching to Jesus' miracles. If we want to understand the cross and the resurrection, we look to John 13 through 17 when Jesus teaches about what he will do. We will see here that Peter misunderstands the love of God and then Jesus will correct him. So here's the scene. They're eating, Jesus stops and he rises. He changes into a servant's clothes and he grabs a towel and he pours water into a bucket. The God of the universe, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the one from whom and for whom and to whom are all things, the one who deserves all praise, honor, and glory, takes the form, the literal form, of a servant or a slave. Then he stoops, and one by one, he goes around and washes the dirty feet of the disciples. Beyond the fact that their feet are dirty and it's dirty work, these are also dirty people. All of them are sinners, 
And they are sinners against God, and Jesus is God. If they, for all their sins, are against anyone, it's against this man now kneeling before them, washing their feet. And they don't, un- and as they've been with him, they are frustrating. They don't understand Jesus' teachings, and he's bared with them gently this whole time. Oh, you have little faith. Oh, you have little faith. And he knows, Jesus knows, while this is all going on, what we now know, what we know coming to the text, that he came from God and will die for their sins. He knows everything, as John told us a couple of verses earlier. And worse than that, one of them is his betrayer. Jesus knows that one of the pair of feet, pairs of feet that he is washing will never have any goodness even after he rises. Judas will never grow in Christ's likeness. He will never be conformed to the image of Christ. He will never be a new creation in Christ's blood. Judas will kill Jesus, and then he will kill himself, and then he will go to hell. There's nothing lovely in Judas. And at the time of the washing, there's very little lovely in the rest. They have not yet Uh, been given the spirit and a new life and a regenerated heart. At very least, it is cosmically wrong that Jesus, the creator of all things, should stoop to be a slave of creations. Even worse, sinful creatures. And Peter picks up on this. He gets that. He understands this. Jesus has no problem with it. It's just he doesn't understand yet what exactly the love of God is. Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus replies that he doesn't get it. You don't understand, but you will understand. He means not after the cross, but when the Spirit comes. As we'll see in John 14 and in Acts 1 and 2. And then Peter responds, You shall never wash my feet. In the Greek, there's even a kind of a double or triple negative thing going on. Peter is emphatic. He will never wash my feet, and he means it. But Jesus corrects him again. He says, Peter, if you don't accept my love in this way, you cannot be saved. Peter would have no inheritance with Jesus. What is Jesus doing here? He's pointing forward to the ultimate example of his love, the cross. If Peter can't accept such a scandal as him washing his feet... He will never accept the scandal of the Lord of life slain by sinners to save sinners. Still not quite understanding, Peter uh, turns a 180. Well, then do more of it. Just uh, keep going. Do my feet and hands. And, uh, you know, maybe he thinks that uh, doing it more than once would be a good idea. He's just very emphatic. Like, okay, I want to be with you then. Do all of that. You just go go, uh, overboard. And then Jesus says, let's rein that in a little bit. Uh, No, Peter, once you've been cleansed by me, once you've already been washed, you will never need it again. Once you've been washed in my blood, you're clean forever. That's where he's headed. But Jesus says to all of them, you are clean except for one. What Peter didn't understand is that Jesus does not wash feet 
because Jesus, or he Jesus isn't washing Peter's feet because Peter deserves it. Or because Jesus just really likes washing feet, or that it was just the right thing to do, or he had some sort of like uh, law that he was submitting to. It's actually far from the right thing to do in Peter's understanding, and often in our understanding. The God of the universe, Peter thinks, shouldn't be a slave to the sinning creature. And Jesus actually grants that, if you look closely. Verse 12 and 13, do you understand? You called me Lord, and you're right. And he agrees further in verse 16. The general principle that Jesus uses is that a servant or a slave is, yes, lesser than his master. That's true, Jesus said. You've got it right. I am your master. But there's something else. They don't understand what it is about Jesus that would cause him to act like a slave or a servant to them. It's not their worthiness. It's not about Jesus' worthiness. It's, about, it's God's nature. God is love, as we read earlier. God's love is the kind of love that doesn't ask whether its recipient is worthy of the love because no one there was worthy of this service. No one is worthy of God acting as a slave. God loves because he is love. And what it means to be the type of God he is is that he is loving through and through, like we talked earlier with the simplicity idea. This is why the gospel, that God sets his love on undeserving sinners, is such good news. If, if you're following, if his love and election were tied up in external things which demand his love, then he would not be capable of loving us. If his love was determined by the loveliness of the things he loved, he wouldn't be able to love us. He also wouldn't be God. (laughs) That's a different discussion. Nothing demands God's love, yet God loves. So I'm going to read for you a vivid picture of this idea from Carson's book. It's a long passage, but Jeff will have it on the screen so you can follow. It's also fairly entertaining. So picture Charles and Susan walking down a beach, hand in hand, at the end of the academic year. The pressure of the semester has dissipated in the warm evening breeze. They've kicked off their sandals, and the wet sand squishes between their toes. Charles turns to Susan, gazes deeply into her large hazel eyes, and says, Susan, I love you. I really do. What does he mean? Well, in this day and age, he may mean nothing more than he feels like testosterone on legs, and he wants to go to bed with her forthwith. This guy's British. (laughs) But if we assume he has even a modicum of decency, let alone Christian virtue, the least he means is something like this. Susan, you mean everything to me. I cannot live without you. I can't live without you. Your smile poleaxes me from 50 yards. Again, he's British. Your sparkling good humor, your beautiful eyes, the scent of your hair, everything about you transfixes me. I love you. What he most certainly didn't mean is something like this. Susan, quite frankly, you have such a bad case of halitosis, it would embarrass a herd of unwashed garlic-eating elephants. Your nose is so bulbous that you belong in the cartoons. 
Your hair is so greasy it could lubricate an 18-wheeler. Your knees are so disjointed that you make a camel look elegant. Your personality makes Attila the Hun and Genghis Khan look like wimps. But I love you. So, now God comes to us and says, I love you. What does he mean? Does he mean something like this? You mean everything to me. I can't live without you. Your personality, your witty conversation, your beauty, your smile, everything about you transfixes me. Heaven would be boring without you. I love you. That is, after all, pretty close to what some therapeutic approaches to the love of God spell out. We must be pretty wonderful because God loves us. And dear old God is pretty vulnerable finding himself in a dreadful state unless we say yes. Suddenly serious Christians unite and rightly cry, bring back the impassibility. Which is some, that was the context he was talking about. But when, he said, when God says he loves us, he does not, does not God rather mean something like the following? Morally speaking, you are the people with halitosis. The bulbous nose, the greasy hair, the disjointed knees, the abominable personality... Your sins have made you disgustingly ugly, but I love you anyway. Not because you're attractive, but because it's in my nature to love. And in the case of the elect, God adds, I have set my affection on you from before the foundation of the universe, not because you're wise or wiser or better or stronger than others, but because in grace I chose to love you. I chose to love you. You are mine, and you will be transformed. Nothing in all creation can separate you from my love mediated through Jesus Christ. Isn't that a little closer to the love of God depicted in Scripture? Doubtless the Father finds the Son lovable. Doubtless in the realm of disciplining His covenant people, there is a sense in which His love is conditioned by our moral conformity, that fifth idea. But at the end of the day, God loves whomever the object, because God is love. There are thus two critical points. First, God exercises this love in conjunction with all of his other perfections, that simplicity idea, his justice and his mercy and his holiness. But his love is no less love for all of that. It's not less when he's expressing his justice and holiness. Second, his love emanates from his own character. It is not dependent on the loveliness of the love external to himself. End quote. God's love is from within himself. Remember the Westminster Confession from earlier. God is infinite in his being, in his is and also in his perfections. Both of those are infinite. Therefore, God being loving is infinite in its being, in the lovingness. He's infinite in his loving, and he's infinite in the perfection of his loving. Infinitely, self-sufficiently perfect and total in his love. That's what it means to love when you are God. That is the love of God. And so, as with any attribute of God, the mere presence of it demands response from the creature. All of God's perfections require praise, and some require emulation. 
Those are the communicable attributes. Jesus' love, as we see in the text, is, it requires us to love in the same way that God loves. None of us are greater than our master, that we should require fulfillment by the object of our love. God himself loves out of his own abundance and not out of his need or the desire to be satisfied by something else. If he does not require that the object of his love matches the outpouring of his love, then neither are we allowed to. We cannot be careful or selective to love people only as much as we think they're worthy of our love. God's love must be from his fullness, and our love must be from our fullness. But how are we filled? Obviously, in our natural state, we are not able to love in this completely self-sacrificial, affectionate, willful, actionable way that isn't contingent on Jeff being really, really cool. Or Judas being really lovable. No, we love because he first loved us. We are filled by God and his love. He filled us with his power and his love, and now we are free, free to love others, expecting nothing in return. Even our enemies, co-workers, family members sometimes, we are free to love anyone and everyone as Jesus loved his enemies. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And as a last word, in the last verse, verse 17, we see on display this fifth type of love that Carson talked about. The love conditioned on the obedience of God's children. Peter encountered it while he was talking with Jesus. Jesus corrected him over and over. Probably fairly shameful in front of the other disciples to be corrected by Jesus. Not pleasant for Peter's flesh. But Jesus did it anyway because he's loving and disciplining toward the ones he loves. And he says so in verse 17 as well. If we love like Jesus loved, if we lay our lives down for not only the ones who are lovable or for a decent man, but also for our enemies, we are blessed. If we act out of our, uh, the, God that, uh, the love that God has loved us with, it is very blessed to give and not receive. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us in all of the many ways that you've expressed it, in creating us, in giving us rain and sunshine and meals and life and breath, even as we sin against you, in extending to all the offer of salvation that all should hear the call, the general call you give to all of the world that none of us is um, without uh, the ability to know you, that none are without excuse. Or, yeah, none have, have an excuse. And Lord, I especially thank you that you have uh, called us out of darkness and given those who trust in you new life and new hearts and have made a covenant with us that we will forever be with you and enjoy your love and all of your other attributes for all of eternity that we will spend 
eternity, trying and failing to plumb the depths of who you are and hold in our minds and in our hearts and reflect in our actions and our affections your infinite glories in all the many things that you have shown yourself to be. So let 